Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Starting a Counseling Practice podcast. I'm Miranda here with Zinni Me and uh, one of the business coaches here helping you build your happy practice. I am delighted. We have Elizabeth Arias, also known as Beth, <laughs> from Clearly Clinical, who's going to be sharing her story of becoming a therapist, starting her clinical practice and multiple streams of income. I know you all love those stories about doing stuff that's beyond the couch and that's outside of the box and utilizing all of your, um, all of your passions. So Beth, thanks for being here. Miranda, it is my pleasure. Always nice to see you. So do you want to share um, with people where you're located and um, what your web address is? Yes, um, I am located in Westlake Village, California, which is in Ventura County. It's kind of on the line between Ventura and LA County. And um, our address is clearlyclinical.com. And as Miranda mentioned, I, um, I own and operate Clearly Clinical, which many of you may have heard of, which is a podcast continuing education company. And I also have my private practice in Westlake. And then I'm also a consultant and trainer with companies across the U.S. So all of those can be found at clearlyclinical.com. Awesome. Okay. So first question I love to start with, why did you decide to become a therapist in like a minute or less? Oof. I like people. Um, I like people. I like connecting. I, I think in our society, we undervalue, I mean, obviously mm. mental health and we don't even, I mean, mental health is separate from medical health, from physical health, which is bonkers because they're so intimately connected. Yeah. Um, so for me, I just love people. I love stories. I love connecting for me, it's lifeblood mm. and to have a career where I get to do that every day is rad. Um, I started <laughs> like early in my career, you know, not in this career, but early in a different career, I worked in luxury sales and I just loved hearing people's stories. Cause I, mm. I worked at Tiffany and company and sold jewelry. And mm. I loved the stories and being part of that story in a way. And mm. so it kind of fed into, well, that's, that's cool. And I have pretty baubles, um, but doing something significant and becoming a therapist. So I think, I think that's kind of my answer. Awesome. How, if you don't mind me asking, how old were you when you knew that you wanted to become a therapist in particular? Um, I was always interested in psychology. I remember mm -hmm. I was 15 when I took my very first psych class in high school. And I was like, mm -hmm. this is rad. Do you guys know about this? Um, <laughs> Why and, isn't everyone talking about right, this? This is amazing. <laughs> and then I, uh, I got my bachelor's at University of California in psychology with a minor in Italian and then knew that I wanted to continue either master's or doctoral in psych. And so it kind of had that option of, do I go database and research or do I go the, the kind of human focused and with people? And so for me, I love both, but I was like, I'm going to go with people. Um, so I would say it was, it started at 15, but it was really in my early twenties that kind of materialized it where it was like, this is what makes sense to me. Awesome. And from the point that you decided to go the people route, how long did it take you to actually like get to the licensure process? Cause that can look different for everybody. If it, if they go straight through or were there any like road bumps along the way? Um, I was working full-time while I was doing my master's program. So that was delightful. In retrospect, I have no idea how I did it. Um, so for those of you who Me are too. doing it or have done it, you look back going, I have no idea. 
I don't understand. Um, But so I finished my master's program in two years and then I got a job working at my my first uh, internship or associateship now in California, as we call it, was working at a large rehabilitation facility in Los Angeles and it was residential. So you don't really have no shows in residential. So I cranked through my hours in about two years and was very quickly licensed. And and I prioritized that. Um, I also... In retrospect, it, it was grueling. It was extremely difficult work. Um, and it taught me so much. And I'm so grateful that I had that experience of being in the trenches mm-hmm. um, with really high acuity cases. And mm-hmm. now in private practice, nothing scares me. Um, yeah. So I can, for me, it was a positive experience. But so that kind of my licensure journey started in residential and then worked with different rehab facilities and then went off into private practice. I think that like that residential place, I remember getting that advice when I was going through school to work in residential. And I was like, well, I mean, I see it. And then when I actually went in and I, I worked actually at a psych inpatient psych facility, mm. but like, again, seeing like, oh, this is what yep. people are like, everybody's got bipolar. No, everybody don't got bipolar. This person got bipolar. Like yeah. you can it's really a different see thing. the fullness of what it looks like when things are really shifting. And again, that place of like being able to like pivot to not be scared of like, oh, this person is floridly like having hallucinations right now. Like exactly. Like I, yeah. I can sit with this. And I always think it's one of the, my favorite experiences in private practice. I was like doing an intake with somebody and suddenly like all these flashes kept coming up of like my time and inpatient. I was like, mm. that's weird. Why is my brain doing this? And then the person said something and I was like, oh, that's why <laughs> That's why my brain has picked up on what is going on here before like I picked up on it. All that fun yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually really recommend it to new therapists. And I, I um, have also taught at Pepperdine University in the graduate psych program there. And I, and I know it's grueling work. I know you're mm-hmm. underpaid and it also gives you a foundation. And so if you find me with a client with suicidal ideation or that's high on heroin, I know what to do because I've been through those things before. And so I have a lot of security in private practice. And it it really taught me coming from a group environment like residential to listen to my judgment, to nurture relationships for consultation and to just feel, I think, really confident in private practice because I, I trust my intuition now. Yes. Ah, I love it. Okay. So at what point in the journey after licensure where you're like, okay, it's time for private practice and why? I think like many people, I was burnt out in an agency-based environment. The, the productivity requirements, um, just such high acuity. At the point that I left agency-based care, I was, at, I was managing a large admissions department I was on call all the time. I was expected to know about the email that was sent at 3 a.m. And um, again, very good experience, but I was just so burnt out. And what's interesting is I actually didn't do private practice first. Um, I started, so to kind of bring all of these streams of income and my story together, I worked at this large rehab facility and I, prior to 
therapy school, we'll say, I had been working uh, for a surgeon and doing utilization review and um, client patient consultation and readying them for procedures, things like that. So I'd been working in medical and I had that background, not recognizing how valuable it would be in in behavioral health. So when I was working at this rehab, doing direct service and groups and all of that wonderful stuff with, you know, a ton of evidence-based practice training under my belt my documentation was really strong because I came from medical and the utilization review person at the facility, I think went on maternity leave and opted not to return. And they asked me to step in temporarily. And it was one of those sink or swim situations. And that started me on the track with clinical documentation and utilization review. So I had been managing an admissions department and again, just the stress was extraordinary. And all of at that point I was well into licensure and had this heart to heart with my partner. And I remember him saying, they get the best of you and I get the rest of you because of how stressed out I was and how burnt out I was. Mm -hmm. And we had gone out of town. This is all way (laughs) pre-pandemic. And we had gone out of town and spent some time with family and just had some really hard, long conversations and mm-hmm. agreed that it was, it was time. And that we, as a couple, were going to give me, I think we initially said either three or six months mm-hmm. to go into exclusively training as an income mm-hmm. stream. And so cl- training in clinical documentation, utilization review, and then also getting established in private practice. And at that point I had already been working as a consultant for a number of facilities in California. So there was already an income stream there that I'd had in addition to the full-time job. Gee, I wonder why I was stressed. Um, <laughs> uh, but, and, and I should also note my uh, wonderful partner is also a therapist. So he's very familiar with this journey and now he's in private practice as well and also teaches. So I have the advantage of a partner who really understands this business and the, um, the nuances, but so that was kind of how that happened and why that happened was I, I just couldn't sustain at the rate that I was in an agency-based environment. Mm. Do you think that having another stream of income kept you from burning out sooner Or do you think that having another stream of income while you're doing that full-time job, like pushed it along? Um, For me, it was really exciting. Yeah. So it was liberating to go into facilities. So at that point I'd been training in UR and clinical documentation for years as a staff member at different facilities. And I'd also had the um, opportunity to work with a number of behavioral health attorneys and do discovery processes with them for, Mm. um, for large cases in California. And that gave me like inside eyes. So taking that knowledge and getting to apply it and interacting with teams, I'm naturally a performer. I grew up on stage. I love singing. I love acting. I love dancing, but I'm not very good at it. Um, and I was able, I never knew this would end up this way, but I was able to take that and translate it into training. And so for me, the additional income stream, of course, additional money is fantastic. But for me, it was very centering and um, Mm. clarifying because I had so much fun with it and I was excited. So for me, Mm. it was actually liberating. So I think that place of, you know, for those of you who are listening that like following the energy, right? Yes. And I think it can be really, and and I also want to like talk about this just briefly, this idea too, that sometimes 
we can have this shiny object syndrome or this like draw to another area because we're trying to escape from like what we're experiencing in a particular position. And I think in a situation like this, where you have this, this job, that's not really sustaining you. That's not really taking care of you in the way that you needed to, to be able to kind of go off and go in this focus direction, see that it's really viable, see that you have options Mm -hmm. was like exactly what you needed. But it also could have been if you were in private practice and that was distracting you, you weren't getting paid well. And then you, you were like losing your regular stream of income. It could also get you like, distracted too. So I think it can be very um, nuanced to know when do we follow our passion and know that that's going to lead us to the income we want. And when do we know that, or, or when can we identify, oh, I'm going from burnout in this thing. And then I'm replicating a burnout situation Mm. in another stream of income. And then I feel like, oh, this didn't work. So now I'm going to go do that again. Like, how do you, for you, for someone who is multi, multi-passionate, who's great at a lot of things, how do you determine what you say yes to and what you say no to? To steal from what you said a moment ago, I follow the energy and I've let it change over the years. So when I, I, I mean, I remember the day I was laying at our apartment complex's pool and I was by myself reading some terrible magazine, I'm sure. And I just kind of let my mind wander and I just hatched up this whole business plan. And I ran upstairs and was like, here's what I'm going to do. And I called my former supervisor and I was like, what do you think? And I, and, and I had these people in my life that were like, sure, why not? Like, see, see what you can do. And the business plan at that point was to get people from different areas that I would rent out like a, a conference space at a, at a hotel or something like that. And would do these live clinical documentation and UR trainings and bring people in from LA County and Ventura County and whatnot. And it ended up not manifesting that way. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up going to the companies and I still do, you know, now it's all aligned. Um, and the webinar that we're doing very shortly, it was sitting yeah. and clearly clinical, um, but it was very clarifying and I was excited about that. Um, and from there, that was kind of the lifeblood. And I had this vision of me training and being on stage and having a mic on my lapel. And that was what I was aiming for. And then I also had this simultaneous vision of sitting in a really peaceful, nice office with somebody, you know, with a client and connecting and just rolling with that energy. And those two things were very um, clarifying and directing. So I just followed that energy. And then the CE platform that I had already been doing online training, but so clearly clinical as a continuing education platform we launched in 2018. And it was just an extension of what I'd already been doing. But so it was a way to connect and to get energy. And also simultaneously, I am big on social justice. I saw too many times as a presenter that I would be the only woman that would be in a lineup um, or the only queer person. And I would also recognize that, you know, there were no people of color and it was like, this, what is going on here? Like, this is not representative. Uh So clearly clinical was my way of trying to make space for me 
and for anybody else at the table that otherwise had been kind of left behind. Because if, if you look at evolution of psychotherapy, historically, if you look at that conference as like being the, the big dog mm-hmm. conference, it is almost exclusively older white men, straight older white men. And that didn't sit well. So And that's not to say that straight older white men haven't contributed an extraordinary amount to our field. They have, and there is also an amazing amount done by others. So that for me was, um, something that I could target with clearly clinical and with a podcast continuing education to make space for other presenters and interviewees when they otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity. So it kind of, it, for me, it's been following the energy, like you said, and also really connecting with a values-based business practice and strategy. And that's never led me astray. Yeah. I think that piece of like really knowing yourself and really knowing who you are and what you want and constantly reconnecting of, okay, it's been three months, it's been six months. Let me, have I gotten distracted? Is it a good distraction or not? what's going on. And then I think there's also something about like really looking at those numbers and knowing, is this actually giving back to me, not just energetically, but also resource wise, Yeah. because I think there is a certain place as therapists, we are kind of bred and taught that as long as you are doing good work in the world, it doesn't matter if resource comes back to you. Right. (laughs) And realistically, it does. Like it yeah. doesn't matter. Like, wow, you fed everybody at the table. You fed everybody in the room. Did you sit down and have a meal? Like, did you yeah. get a meal? Like, I think it's so important. And I love that you are someone that is business-minded that comes back to the idea of like, wait, I, I deserve to eat. I deserve to have a meal as well. And I want to create something that everybody gets a meal. Yeah. And I think what has been interesting for me. Um, I read a few books by Richard Branson years ago, and I thought it was really, you know, how he got his start was he was uh, gumption full enough to ask the Rolling Stones for an interview when he was a high schooler. And that Mm -hmm. was what started Richard Branson creating Virgin and now all of these other companies that have shot off from it. And it's funny because I've, I've actually used that example in my own life where I kind of live by the saying the, the answer to an unasked question is always no. Mm-hmm. And now I've interviewed Dr. Irv Yalom and Julie Gottman and Mel Pohl. And it's just like, I just asked, you know, I, I created yeah. a platform and I said, here, come, come share what you have to share. Yeah. And I would just love to sit here and munch some popcorn while you're talking to me. This is amazing. And, <laughs> um, that it was, it, it was feeding me energetically, but also appreciating as a woman, as an entrepreneur, if you look at the statistics, female entrepreneurs are significantly more likely to be engaged in um, humanistic causes and to donate. And so we donate to the Trevor Project for queer suicide prevention. And, you know, unsurprisingly, but it's like, how do I donate? How do I make this a focus of my business and of my life and, and create a value based board, you know, also a diverse board who has the same vision as I have and, and also be able to pay my bills because as a woman, I'm so conditioned to be like really, um, modest and to not be over the top and 
and so that, that was, that was, and that continues to be interesting for me to, to have had this vision of creating clearly clinical, you know, five years ago and have it be successful. And now that we have tens of thousands of users, we get emails every day. It's so cool, but it's also like a little bit jarring because I'm so conditioned as a woman to like not step into the spotlight. And so to simultaneously hold, I'm proud of myself. And this is really big and important. And also to maintain humility. Um, it's, it's just interesting. And I think for women in particular, that struggle, I think for everybody, but it's very conditioned into women. It's very conditioned into any marginalized community members to not take up space. And so to allow ourselves to take up space, to set our fees in private practice in a way that actually lets us literally feed ourselves and our families, um, and to balance, you know, I have some patients, some clients who are, are paying $25 an hour. Um, and that's a choice I'm okay with making. And that's how I give back to the community. And I have others that are paying much more than that. Um, but so to sit with that, um, I guess, conflict and know yourself and figure out what really makes sense for you. And if you peel off these societal layers about making money and, um, modesty and humility and not taking up space, where do you actually sit? So I was glad for me, that process was a lot of conversation, um, some hard conversations with a business advisor, with my therapist, with my partner, with friends to sit with, what does this look like? And how do I do something that is consistent with my beliefs and values? Um, Mm -hmm. and also is, is going to provide for me financially. Yeah. And provide for your family and make it, make it, I would say like, not say not worthy, but like the idea that like, I, I am taking time and energy away from my family, you know, like we're both moms, Yeah. like that you're making the decision of, okay, like, does this all come in alignment or is there going to come a time where my child looks at me and says, mom, you were got a lot. Yeah. And like, was it, was the balance like worthy of that versus being able to say like, I was gone the amount that I needed to be to take care of our family and to do good in the world. And I stand by the balance that I created and I stand by the resource that it brought to our family and to the communities and the way that I gave back versus like, well, yeah, no, I, I did all this and I was making $12 an hour. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I could have made a different decision. Like, how does that feel? Yeah. Um, I grew up in a home and so did my husband where both of our parents, um, worked a lot and were gone a lot. And when we had children, we are very fortunate and privileged in our position to be able to try to schedule ourselves. We're both in private practice now, and we never could have weathered the last two years with a pandemic. Um, if we didn't have the flexibility that we have now, uh, one of our children has a major medical condition, which has also taken an extraordinary amount of time and funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are in a very fortunate position. Um, and it was also by design that we made yeah. choices and said, uh, here, you know, in, in a perfect world, here's what we would do. Let's set the target and then try to take steps that are getting us closer to that. And so yeah. it was kind of a, us viewing our partnership, our marriage as, um, as, as part of the equation of moving our family forward. Um, but yeah, it is, and it's interesting. My husband, my husband's a person of color and both of our awareness, um, that we are, 
breaking and confronting many societal norms and the work that we've done with Clearly Clinical has been a, a, a hot topic of conversation at our table. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure our six-year-old is like, I don't want to hear about Clearly Clinical anymore. I don't care. <laughs> Um, but I, I mean, I, and I, I am gone a lot, um, but that's another thing to go back to the triple income stream thing. When I had this fantasy many years ago about training, I was going to travel all over the country and I was going to speak in these grand halls and I did all of that. And I had a lot of fun with it. And then right before the pandemic started in the United States, I went to different States and I did these big trainings and my cup was empty and I missed my kids. And I said, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And so I stopped. <laughs> yeah. And so then it was like, okay, well then how are we going to make up? And, you know, granted, I <laughs> lost a ton of present presenting uh, opportunities because of the pandemic, but um, now how do we move things online? How I've been able to transfer and transition the business with these changes. But so um, I've, I just let it evolve and I've trusted that my career can evolve and that I'll evolve alongside it. And again, going back to trusting my intuition and following my values. It's, it's so powerful. I want to bring us back to this, this piece of the documentation. Um, and I, I, I just want to say, I love how all of the pieces of our lives, when we are like in our magic all come together. Oh, like, yeah, I have a absolutely. similar story of like, I worked at, at an insurance agency and I started teaching people how to use the computer because they didn't know how and how to do technology. And then I worked for this place and that place. And then suddenly it was like, oh, I see how all of this comes together yep. in my work that like I'm teaching therapists how to build websites and how to figure out how to get their website to the first page of Google. And you're like, oh, but in the midst of it, I couldn't have possibly seen right. that these skills were going to translate and be part of like how I would, you know, take care of my family. Like no idea, no idea whatsoever. So going back to that, like utilization review and going in and working with attorneys and starting through that process of like seeing it from the standpoint of, Hey, I'm sitting here with the attorney going through the documentation after the fact mm -hmm. and seeing like, Ooh, right. Here's what somebody did. Well, like, Oh, here's where like, there's like a big hole. How has it been to be able to actually go out and do that preventative work of teaching mm. people the documentation training, like knowing how many people you have probably helped avoid those kind of nightmare situations that you were like, a part, not a part of, but like where yeah. you were like that, that you I witnessed. were witnessed that you were a witness of, like, what's it like to, to see the other side of it, of like, I get to go and help these therapists give better, give better outcomes and better treatment yeah. to their clients, as well as help them feel safe and be safe from liabilities, which is a lot of our biggest fears, <laughs> like yeah. a lot of therapists, Absolutely. like, what are the three things that like we truly fear one of our clients, like hurting themselves hurting or somebody themselves. else, right? The BDS, the board coming after us for our license and being like sued, sued. and being on a court yeah. stand. Like these are our top three fears. It's not even like, I won't get money 
or, you know, like, what if my or I'm not a good therapist, or yeah. I'm not a good therapist. Those, those are not the top three. It's these yeah. three things. So what's it been like to actually be able to like do that work and, and help people start to knock off, have a different relationship Um, to go back to something you'd said just really quickly. I completely agree about the career synergy of like these, you, you never anticipate how these parts are all going to fit together and then Mm -hmm. they bloom into something. And I feel really fortunate that that came to be because (laughs) it's, I, I did a devil's wears devil wears Prada kind of job for a number of years and it was just soul sucking, but I learned so much from it and I use it every day now and it's hysterical. Um, so who knew that the devil wears Prada job was going to serve me in what I do now. Um, uh, that's but- how I feel about working for McDonald's. I know that sounds ridiculous, but like so many skills, so yeah. much, so many skills from like these bizarro jobs that I had yeah. while I was working the whole time. I did parking at the county fair. And for those who are listening and can't see it, I'm doing my parking motion with my fingers. Yeah. So, so anyway, off of the synergy and, and onto your question. Um, for me, I created this clinical documentation method that I've now copyrighted. Um, and so I've created these different acronyms, different ways for clinicians to conceptualize their documentation, but it was never born as I'm going to do this to help people. It was stuff I created for myself. And then I would tell, you know, friends about it, colleagues, and they'd be like, you should really like bring this up to your manager and then you should start training it. And then that just kind of snowballed. Um, and for me, I, I will um, bear my soul here. There was a day when I was curled up under my desk in a fetal position with tears in my eyes because I was so overwhelmed with documentation. And if you're listening to this um, and nodding, I feel you. (laughs) Um, Because I, I mean, my productivity requirement at that rehab was insane and I had such high acuity cases. And then these extraordinary LA County um, 13 page assessments that needed to be done. And it was just, it was just backbreaking. And I was so discouraged and I'm like, why did I do this? I shouldn't have done this job. I I'm not, I can't do this because no one really told me in school that this involved documentation. There were, there were never any discussions about it. There was never any training. And it's like, oh no, that's, that's a big foundational part of our jobs. And so everything that I have created about documentation and UR was born out of my own experience and it just kind of extrapolated. And um, I'm a total documentation nerd. I'm super detail oriented. I'm what I call a novel writer in recovery that I used to just write so much. I I sometimes still do um, in my documentation, but I I, I had this moment after getting out from underneath my desk uh, in my little cave of an office saying to myself, okay, sink or swim figure it out. You have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was what set off the trajectory. And then once I had figured it out, I went, I can teach other people to do this. And so then I worked at various facilities and I would train all the staff. And then people kept saying, you're really good at this, you know, and then it was like, can we do a public training and people come, come from the community and we can do this. And it just kept building and flowing from there. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, as weird as it sounds, I see it fitting into the community as taking away or reducing a pain point that's so common for clinicians and, and to be able to do that. Um, I have so much fun with it and I'm not saying I like documentation. I I truly don't know anybody who does. Um, and (laughs) when I invested the time to understand what needed to be there, um, 
I'm a feedback informed treatment trainer. So how do we actually improve outcomes? How does, how do outcomes relate to documentation, to utilization review, to getting the authorizations we need from insurance? Like it, it's like, I just kept pulling on the thread. And so to be able to train people and then get them kind of excited about that thread, Mm -hmm. um, that's to me, it just fills up my cup. I have so much fun. And I, I think it is, it's a huge pain point. Um, for those of you who are listening and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I would love to have Beth train me so that I don't have to feel stressed and I don't have to take hours to do my documentation for like a normal note, Beth, how long does it take you? Two minutes. Two minutes. How many of you guys want to have your note (laughs) done for normal note? Like not the crazy note of like suicidal client or whatever, just a normal note, two minutes. We'd all love that, right? Um, We are bringing Beth in to do a free training Um, there is already 5,000 people registered, (laughs) over 5,000 people registered. I was going to ask you Um, how many people were registered. (laughs) Um, if that tells you that you are not alone, that this is a pain point that a lot of people have, we just did this training six months ago with Beth. And again, we had over, we had over 5,000 people at that one, but the fact that we're already like, it's a couple weeks out and we're at five over 5,000, I think we're probably going to be more like at seven or 10. I'm not sure. We're going to see what it looks like, but, um, come it's free. There's a CE, there's Mm -hmm. going to be community and connection. You're going to get a handout and like clarity of how to create something that really works for you. And that does not put you at risk. Like, and I, this is like a soapbox I've had for a long time and I'm not a documentation training, but I love um, listening to Beth's training that she had the same soapbox, copy and pasting all of your notes from client to client or session to session is not going to keep you safe liability wise. Right. It's not going to give your client something substantial of what they need um, for a variety of different purposes. So they're, they're, I know that it's stressful. I know that we want some easy way out of it. Copying and pasting the perfect note does not exist. And she's she's going to create something. And specifically, if you are called onto the support stand, it's going to put you at jeopardy of not doing like your like your your job. But that doesn't mean you have to do the novel. It doesn't mean you have to spend an hour on documentation. So I really hope you guys will come. You can go to zinnyme.com and just click on the the free trainings and you'll see how to register to that. Um, We'll also have a link in the show notes. Um, Again, zinnyme.com, click on the podcast. We have the show notes right there um, and we'll link you out to get you um, signed up. Um, Bring your friends. They probably are all, all of us start out with feeling like completely confused. And for me, this is something that, that I will say what I remember the moment when I like came to my clinical supervisor and was like, can you please look at my notes? Like literally nobody told me what to write in these. And I'm just guessing. And can you like, please help me. And we sat for probably two months going through and, and her giving me feedback and a little bit of feedback of like, well, I'm not really sure, but like, here's what I do. So there was still like some pieces missing that I had to pull out, but to have 
that place of like, hey, can you write and just say that you reviewed my notes and my documentation to help protect me? And when I became a clinical supervisor, the fact that I brought it up and started teaching my people from the very beginning, here's how you write the note for after the first session. Like, here's what it looks like to write a note. And I'm going to review these from the beginning yeah. so that you feel good and confident. And at a certain point, it will just be like, I'm reviewing and I can see kind of your case presentation just from your notes. And they leave feeling really good and confident. Like everybody should have that experience. So even if you feel great about your documentation, but you don't know how to teach someone else how to do it. If you're a clinical supervisor. Yeah. If you're a clinical supervisor. Yeah. Like this is here. If you are a group practice owner and you haven't taught every one of your clinicians how to do documentation in your practice, if you're not reviewing their documentation, you need to come to this training. You need to learn a process that you're, you know, bring all of your group practice employees, have them pay them to come to this training and get a free CE, pay them their admin rate. And like, let's take this fear out yeah. of the way. Right. And again, if you're not on clearly clinicals list already, clearlyclinical.com, and you're not seeing the amazing podcasts and trainings that they put out, oh my goodness, go and check that out. And isn't y'all in the best? Kelly and I got to go to his house years ago. Did you? <laughs> we did because we asked. I mean, I um, saw his house. Yeah, exactly. I saw his house in our interview. No, uh, we, like we got to go into his private practice office, and then he went to show us stuff in his study in his house while his like housekeeper with the bookcases. You've with seen the, the bookcases. Book yes, yes, yeah, yes, the whole thing. And like again, like the little. Oh gosh, he's such a nice man. Such a nice man. Um, but yeah, you never know. So anywho, I know that we're out of time. Beth, what do you want to leave our listeners with? So, oh gosh. Well, it's one thought I want to leave you with. Um, for any of you that are interested in doing some of the stuff that I've done. So in training, in writing, I, I do a lot of authorship. Um, if you are interested in starting continuing education courses, blogs, things like that. Um, we have a free CE course with Dr. Joy. Um, and Dr. Joy is one of the most successful Instagram psychologists out there. And she's just incredible, but it's all about the law and ethics and considerations about having a public presence outside of therapy. It's free. Just listen to the podcast. It's a fantastic interview. She's delightful and so um, knowledgeable um, from her work. So go do that. We have a free Gottman CE course. So just go to clearlyclinical.com, click on free CE courses. But what I want to leave you with is I think um, to allow yourself to make space for possibility. And that if we have the opportunity when life slows down enough and we can catch our breath for me, it's actually driving. When I drive, I don't listen to music. I just spend some time in the silence and I just think, and I let myself just go. I let my brain roll. And I, I, what I call take out the plexiglass box, which is like, there's, you know, this plexiglass box that society has put around our thoughts about what's possible and what's not, or what we can do and what we can't. And I let my brain take that box out and the kind of slime just starts spilling over everywhere. And I go, where does it go? Um, and I follow that and I, and I follow the creativity. I think there's so much there. And I, I, 
empower you to take out the plexiglass box and just see what's there when you're not feeling confined by, well, I wouldn't be able to make, make enough money or I, I, I don't know, you know, who can help me with this, that it's like, well, if I did, what would that look like? And, and who do I have in my um, email inbox or in my voicemail or my text messages that could help me with this thing that I want to do with my business that knows about websites that knows about finding office space and to sit in that space to, um, to feast in the possibility, I guess. And that, that to me is where the richness has been. And then to do it in a way that's aligned with my values, I can think of no other life or career that could suit me better than what I have. And not that many people can say that. Um, and so I think it is absolutely possible. You just have to give yourself the opportunity to start wondering. So go wonder. Gosh, is anyone else in here? <laughs> like, oh, just like chills all the way through. Again, Beth is magic. Come hear her magic. We are so incredibly lucky to have her um, coming to the training. And if this podcast has been helpful for you, um, if it has inspired you, share it with a friend, share it with a colleague, go and rate us on wherever you listen to your podcasts. And until next time, just know that you are out there doing the good work. You are needed. You are valuable. Yes.